I'm Chris Reback. And I'm Tegan Goddard. You're listening to the free version of Trial Balloon. Visit trialballoon.fm to get new episodes every week and more. Tegan, I'm just saying hypothetically, let's say that there is a Republican presidential debate on the same evening that you have a tennis match scheduled. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, it depends on what kind of debate it is, Chris. Well, Are let's we say talking... it's a debate like the one last night. We're recording this on Thursday. So the one on Wednesday night where, you know, it was Nikki, it was Vivek, it was Ron, and it was Chris Christie. Well, Chris, I have to say last night I opted for tennis, two very competitive sets of tennis, and it was great fun. And I, I left the courts, turned on in the car the debate, and quickly knew I made the right choice. Did you do better on the tennis court than Vivek did on the debate stage? Well, almost anybody could have done that. So (laughs) (laughs) he is a character, as Chris Christie pointed out. Kind of the softest thing that Chris Christie had to say about it. Reminder, holidays are coming, and that means only one thing. Mailbag episodes are coming up. So get your questions in, please. For the mailbag, we've got a few already. And want to keep Santa's bag full of mail. The first thing I thought we should talk about this week, Tegan, is last week's episode. We titled last week's episode, An Incredible Shrinking GOP House Majority. And since that podcast, the GOP majority has shrunk 50%. Santos went away the next day. And just this week, McCarthy said that he's going to be leaving. How much smaller can this majority get? Well, we'll see, Chris. But I have to say, that's what we give the trial balloon listeners, right? We forecast right before the Santos vote, you know, we thought it was pretty likely he was going to be expelled. Yeah, everyone had that one, though. Okay, but let's just give ourselves a little bit of credit, okay? We also did highlight the fact that Kevin McCarthy might soon be departing as well, and he did this week. He announced in the Wall Street Journal that he would be leaving by the end of the year, which after the way he feels he was treated by his Republican colleagues, he's leaving them in a bit of a pickle, I think, Chris. I'm not surprised that he is deciding to leave Congress. I just thought that that would happen. He would decline to run again. But to leave in the middle of his term, it struck me as definitely a bit odd. That was not what I was expecting. And when you and I kind of discussed this a little bit earlier this week, I would say that your encouragement was to suggest thinking about this as having less to do with Kevin McCarthy himself and more to do with his feelings towards Mike Johnson. Is that still what you would argue? Well, I've read a bunch of reporting saying that Mike Johnson has not really relied on Kevin McCarthy for advice. And if you're going to be a former speaker in the body, one would think his party's leadership would treat him the way Hakeem Jeffries treats Nancy Pelosi. She's serving at her term. Nonetheless, that has not happened. And you read about that. And I think Kevin McCarthy, he's like, you know, I've got this amazing fundraising ability for Republicans. I've got this leadership pack that raises all kinds of money and that he's doled it around. And it's like Kevin McCarthy's going to take his ball and go home. He doesn't want to play this game anymore. I'm sorry, but isn't that what babies do? (laughs) Well, you can call them babies, but what is the most interesting thing to me is that he's actively leaving his party in a bad situation. He's leaving them with a two-seat majority while there's these vacant seats. And so when Congress reconvenes early next year, it's going to be a problem for Mike Johnson if he tries to push through, you know, let's say he tries to push through impeachment articles for Joe Biden. He's not going to have the votes to be able to pass this, I would expect, with only a two-vote margin. So I think it's pretty damning. 
It is. The main reason why I'm so perplexed isn't the right word, because I get all of that. Look, the negative take on Kevin McCarthy for the last however long has been that he is only interested in one thing. He wanted the power of the speakership. That was it. He would do anything to become speaker. And that's a not great thing to have your reputation be built around, that you are a U.S. congressperson and you actually don't care. You're not there because you care about constituents or representing your district, that you're there only for the reach for power. I'm naive, but not that naive. Obviously, I recognize that that's why a lot of people go into that. But to give such evidence to decide, okay, well, you know what? If I can't have the power, then yeah, you know what? <laughs> you guys all were right the whole time. I actually have no interest in supporting my constituents, even though they put me into this role for two years. It gives full support, in my opinion, to any type of negative characterization of his character. And fine, I, you know, I could hear right now listeners, you know, particularly people who don't like McCarthy saying, well, duh, exactly, Chris, you know, like that's the point. That is exactly his character. I'm just surprised that he wouldn't take the opportunity to fake it for another 12 months. I guess he couldn't. Well, you know, there are two of his colleagues in the House, or one former colleague. There's Nancy Pelosi, of course, who has called Kevin McCarthy pathetic multiple times in the past. And uh, Liz Cheney, she's on a book tour this week, and she also decided to call Kevin McCarthy pathetic. I found that actually especially interesting that two people on very opposite sides of the spectrum both don't hold him in high regard. Yeah, and that is kind of what it is. I mean, it's a bad move. Allegedly, he's in this because of constituents, and I would think that he probably has said that. It just lays bare what was there. So it just gives all the ammunition to anyone who would have wanted to say that about him. Speaking of giving ammunition, there's this rumor out there that Donald Trump, if he were to be elected again, would be a dictator. And Sean Hannity this week gave him the opportunity to completely disprove that, to deny it. And Trump didn't exactly take that path, did he? He did say just for one day, Chris. Only one day. You know, he's, he's got he's got things to do. So I actually think this is probably one of the most important stories of this week, if not this campaign. We obviously have seen over the course of the past week a bunch of articles in the Washington Post and the New York Times about the danger of Trump becoming a dictator. We've seen the Atlantic this month is running an entire issue with articles about the danger of Donald Trump because he wants to become a dictator. What was interesting about that comment, you know, his favorite interviewer, Sean Hannity, kind of threw the softball out, is that Trump has this interesting way of saying he's joking, but he's not joking. He's got this idea where he needs to joke about it because he wants to diminish all of these newspaper articles. He wants to diminish what Maggie Haberman at the New York Times says. He wants to diminish the Atlantic, you know, all of these things. He doesn't want to give them credence. He's like, yeah, just joking. But at the same time, he's not joking. And he's not joking in the same way. He's kind of got this coded message that he's giving to his supporters. Just like when he said, stand back and stand by to the Proud Boys. Or when he said, go in peace and fight like hell to his supporters on January 6th, when he was giving that speech before the riot started. This is his not joking. This is, you know, evidence of this authoritarian streak that he has. And that's how he talks. That's how he communicates. And I think people need to take notice of that. 
And the other thing he does is he completely seizes all media coverage for, you know, 24 or 48 hours when he says something like this, which is also classic Trump. Would anyone have believed him if he had said, oh, no, no, come on, Sean, don't be ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, probably not. But he's got this ability to do this kind of wink, wink thing with his supporters. And yeah. um, many people say, in my view, some would say he does that on everything. And yes, that Trump speak has now become infamous. But the part that was strange to me was, I don't think it would have mattered what he said. You know, if he had simply said, I've heard that, Sean, and come on, people are just overreacting. Don't be ridiculous. I don't even know what that means. Would you have believed that? No, probably not. But, you know, it's important. So a lot of people like to dismiss Trump as just being an idiot. And sometimes he sounds like an idiot, so it's easy to dismiss him. He also zeroed in on two very important issues that he wanted to focus on. And after he said that he would only be a dictator except for day one, you know, Sean Hannity asked for some clarification. And Trump said, I want to close the border and I want to drill, drill, drill. Well, what does he mean by that? Like those issues that he's focused on here is one, immigration, and two, inflation, right? Drill, drill, drill is code for we're going to get more oil so that we can lower gasoline prices. Immigration and inflation are the two biggest issues that Trump is focused on here. And realistically, those are probably the two biggest issues for Joe Biden that he needs to worry about right now. Those are where Biden has weaknesses. So it's really interesting that Trump is pushing those two issues in this way. I didn't hear much analysis of that with all of the hours of pundits on television talking about what Trump said. They were focused more on the fact that he said he'd be a dictator for one day and not the fact that he's really focused like a laser on those two issues. Listening to you say that, it's also interesting to me, you just said he was talking about two issues, immigration and inflation. He used neither of those two words. He speaks in such language that everyday people would talk about something close the border. We're going to shut down the border. That's about immigration, but he doesn't use the eyes glaze over policy wonk word, you know, immigration. He doesn't talk about inflation. He puts it exactly where people care about, which is, hey, your gas prices are too high. We're going to lower the gas prices. That's a lesson that I think any politician could take away from him about how he speaks. He translates, maybe not everything, most things, many things into the practical, everyday Here's how people are talking about it when they're talking with their friends in their real lives. Yeah, no, there's definitely some truth to that. And, you know, the two issues are also pretty complicated ones for Joe Biden as well. Immigration is something that for 20 years Congress has struggled with. The more time that goes by, the less common ground there seems to be between the two parties on that. I know right now the Senate is trying to talk about some border provisions that could go into a bill so that they can pass aid for Ukraine and aid for Israel. But the fact is, is that many Democrats feel it's very hard to negotiate with Republicans who say things like just shut down the border, which seems to be just a black and white binary situation. And that's obviously much more complicated than that. And for our economy, it's more complicated than that. You know, We're in a situation where we have historically low unemployment. We could actually use workers to come into this country and to take up jobs that are not being filled right now. So it is a tough issue for Democrats to navigate. And similarly, inflation is a tough one, right? There was an interesting poll that came out this week. The Daily Coast and Civics had this really interesting poll. And really what this poll found was that people have a different view of inflation than economists do. When people hear that inflation is going down, they expect prices to be going down. 
So when the inflation rate drops from 8% to 3%, you know, Chris, you and I would know that's a good thing. The fact that it's dropped from 8% to 3%, that is a good thing. Prices are not rising as quickly every year as they were previously. Well, most Americans, when they hear that inflation drops, they think that means prices are going to fall as well. And of course, they haven't seen prices fall. And so there's this great disconnect in what inflation really means. And that creates an expectations problem for Joe Biden. But when Donald Trump is out there saying drill, 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 all he's saying is I'm going to lower your gas prices by flooding the market with oil, which of course would happen. But that's not the issue of inflation. It's not just gas prices. It's really a much broader than that. It's so true. I mean, Biden has been talking about it because factually inflation has been coming down. And so he can talk about positively how he's bringing down inflation. And then people look at the prices and inflation going down still means prices are going up. They just, as you said a moment ago, they're going up slower than they were going up previously. It is much more concrete to simply say, I'm going to drill for oil and bring your gas prices down. Don't you want cheaper gas? No, oh, exactly. And that's the way that Donald Trump speaks. That's the way he communicates these issues you know, to his base. And uh, it gets them excited. And it makes them wonder why Joe Biden isn't doing more. You know how much it gets them excited? A Wall Street Journal poll has come out, as you posted in Political Wire. It finds that Donald Trump is leading the Republican presidential race with 59% followed by Nikki Haley at 15% and Ron DeSantis at 14%. And yet, on a week where Trump has an exponential lead, I mean, he is four times higher than Nikki Haley at 15%. During that same week, Nikki Haley is getting the money. Coke Network, putting money into Nikki Haley's campaign. Reed Hoffman, putting money into Nikki Haley's campaign. Wall Street, Jamie Dimon saying, put money into Nikki Haley's campaign. Is this the 2024 version of smart money quickly becoming dumb money? Well, I think it is because while I certainly understand people's need to have an alternative to Donald Trump in the Republican Party, and there's obviously a section of the party that does not want Donald Trump to get the nomination, it's just the reality that the vast majority of Republican voters are just fine with Trump. So the Koch network will endorse Nikki Haley because she's certainly at least on a upward trajectory in the polls, even if it's from 4% to 15%. But she's certainly, as you know, just way behind Donald Trump. So the bet that they're making is that somehow we get into the convention time this summer and that Donald Trump, who has, let's just speculate, has been convicted of crimes and is now a convicted felon. I mean, Chris, there's no way the Republican convention would nominate him as their nominee, right? But the reality is, is I actually think most Republican voters would actually want Donald Trump, even if he was convicted of crimes. And so the idea that Nikki Haley would be there as a fallback candidate really is such a low probability event at this point. When we see Trump's strength this high, it's hard to imagine. It'd be a lot different if Nikki Haley was trailing Trump by five points. So why is so much money being poured into her campaign? Because I think people are taking a bet. You know, so I just think in case. It. So okay, but that's a pretty bad bet, I think. I'm trying to think this through even as I'm saying it. I mean, what's the probability that Trump does not get nominated because of this emergency situation? Because if it's a bad bet, Trump don't forget. Yeah, you know, Chris, I mean, I've been to a casino with you and I know you know bad bets when you see them. I think your instinct is right here. It feels a little bit like the 2024 version of smart money potentially quickly becoming dumb money. What about the debate this week, the one that 
you may not have necessarily spent your time watching live because you had a tennis match to win, but you know, you and I both ended up watching significant parts of it afterwards. Nikki Haley was widely seen as having done well on that stage. Well, I think, you know, an indication of her new front runner as the number two candidate status is that everyone was kind of attacking her. That was where the fire was coming. Vivek Ramaswamy attacked her, you know, pretty significantly. Ron DeSantis did. Even Chris Christie did, though Christie actually stood up and defended her against Ramaswamy. But I really think the key takeaway from the debate, and it's something I wrote this week, which was that Chris Christie became that candidate that I think everybody was kind of hoping he would be. He became the Republican truth teller who really was critical of Ramaswamy for basically being Ramaswamy. I mean, it was pretty devastating takedown of Ramaswamy, much like the way he took down Marco Rubio in 2016. He humiliated Ron DeSantis for refusing to say Donald Trump was unfit to be president. Yes. He slammed Nikki Haley, suggesting that she's really just trying to be Trump's running mate or maybe just setting herself up for a future presidential bid. That was the Chris Christie that we kind of were waiting to see when he entered this race. Unfortunately, it's a shame that he actually never was able to debate Donald Trump. And Donald Trump made a calculated decision that I'm not going to be hurt by not showing up for these debates. And it turns out that Trump was more than correct on that. He's actually risen in the polls by not showing up for these debates. But it would have been great fun to watch Christie take on Trump directly. But I think Trump's probably scared of him. There is no reason for Trump to have shown up at these debates, and it has been proven. Isn't that incredible that the more Republican voters have heard from the other candidates, the less they like them, and the more they go to Trump? I mean, how can you hope to be a successful politician if the more people see you, the less they like you? It's amazing. But Chris, you know, don't despair. CNN announced today that there will be two more debates. There will be a debate in Iowa next month, and there will be a debate in New Hampshire next month. Now, these are unsanctioned debates. The RNC is loosening rules around these debates because they realized that they weren't really having the needed impact that they had hoped that they would. You and I probably didn't really watch that debate last night because it was on something called News Nation. And I'm not really sure where I can find News Nation. So I had to Google it in order to get some clips. But CNN, I do know where that is on the uh, TV dial. And these two debates are supposedly going to be on CNN. But there is a pretty high bar that CNN is setting for candidates. They need to get at least 10% in these national and early state polls. And so brace yourself, Chris, you could possibly see a stage of only two or three candidates for these debates. You know, it would be interesting to see who those two will end up being, but it won't be Donald Trump, as you said. He made a smart move by not showing up for this sideshow. You know what two more debates means, don't you? Tell me, Chris. More tennis for Tegan. <laughs> I'll tell you this. If Donald Trump shows up for one of them, I'll cancel my tennis match. Okay. We'll hold you to it. Talk to you next week, Tegan. Talk later, Chris.